in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is what we read. It says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now I want to make a statement. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica around the middle of the first century. Some date this writing to the fifth, you know, AD 50, some dated to AD 60, AD 70. But this is being written to the church. This is being written to the assembly of believers who are living in the first generation of believers. This is a church who is made up of people who possibly stood on the day of Pentecost and heard the gospel proclaimed in the power and under the anointing of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. This are are, are, are groups of people who are directly in relationship. You need to understand this. With the apostles of the Lamb, these are individuals who, who have Peter and James and Paul and, and Matthew and Timothy and Titus and Thomas as leaders in the body. This is the first generation. So when Paul says to them, <laughs> don't be soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. What we cannot do is take, well, we can do it, but it's not wise, is to take that passage of scripture and say, see, the Bible says, <laughs> not to be soon shaken in mind or, or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Folk, that was written 2,000 years ago. <laughs> Does this make sense? So we can't take that verse of Scripture and say, see, even Paul said that the day of Christ is not at hand. This was 2,000 years ago, and I'm going to go into why Paul had to write that to the church in just a moment. But let me finish reading the, let me finish reading the passage. He says, let no man deceive you by any means. You know, it's interesting, as I was studying this, and I said I wasn't going to comment on it, but I have to. It's amazing that when, 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 we, read through the New, when we read through the New Testament writings, even when we're reading through the Gospels and Jesus begins to talk about deception and Paul begins to talk about deception and James begins to talk about deception and John begins to talk about deception and discernment, it's always interesting that they're always talking about take heed that no man deceive you. We tend to focus on this thing about the devil deceiving people. Jesus puts an emphasis on not allowing 
man to deceive you. Understand something about the kingdom of darkness. The enemy uses people <laughs> just like the Holy Spirit uses people. And we're going to see this lived out in the, in the life of Judas. But Paul's admonition and Jesus's admonition really focused on not letting men deceive us. They didn't put that much emphasis on the devil because what they understood is, is what we understand is that when you understand the word and when you know the voice of the father, you know the plan of God, you know the purpose of God, you can pretty much detect the enemy. <laughs> you can detect the enemy in politics. You can detect the enemy in religious systems because you know how he operates. And, and this is one of the things that I believe that we as followers of Christ living in the 21st century, we need to, to really get a handle on is understanding how the enemy actually works. You know, all right, let's go. So he says this, he says, don't be soon shaken, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, what day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of the coming of the Lord. That day, the second coming, when every eye will see him, that day, when, when we will see him come with the clouds of heaven, that day will not come except, now, and I'm going to work with this tonight because we need to understand, there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, <laughs> who opposes and exalts himself, above all that is called God, or that is worshiped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Don't you remember that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? So here, thanks for, thanks for that, that, that award, sis. Here, Paul begins to have to address the early church's understanding of the eschaton. Now, people say, what is the eschaton? The eschaton is the revealing of the Lord Jesus. The eschaton is the second coming of Christ. It's where we get the word eschatology from, dealing with things in the end times, dealing with the events that are leading up to the culmination of the prophetic work of God in the earth, the second coming of Christ, and the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. Paul had to uh, remind them that there were some things that had to take place first. So despite the fact that Paul is saying there, there are people who are claiming that they are sent from God, there are people who claim to be one of us, and they're bringing letters as from us, or they're bringing a word and as from us, Paul says, don't let no man deceive you. 
there are certain things that must take place prior to the second coming of Christ. Mind you, this is 2,000 years ago he's writing. Now, the tragedy is much of this has taken place already. However, there are certain systems of belief that would lead people to believe that these things are yet to come. So we are much further along the prophetic plan of God than a lot of people are letting on to because they've read Hal Lindsey's book. They've read the late great planet Earth. They've read the Left Behind series. They've, they've read all of this stuff that ignores 2,000 years of history, church history. Why is it in America we have this thing about revising history? Well, I mean, what, what is it about this nation that we always are trying to rewrite history? <laughs> We're trying to rewrite American history. We're trying to rewrite all kinds of history, even so far as trying to rewrite the history of Christianity the history of the scriptures as if it originated in Europe and it didn't. But much of the, the teaching, much of the preaching, much of the prophesying is doing nothing more but undergirding and propping up a religious ideology that has absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Don't get mad. <laughs> Get free. So he says, listen, don't let any man deceive you by any means. Now, because this generation of believers believed, because Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so many people took that to mean Jesus was coming in their day. This was a common understanding in the New Covenant community. They believed Jesus was coming in their day. They didn't understand. <laughs> there was a lot of prophecy left to be fulfilled. So Paul, in this passage, begins to clarify some things about the second coming of Jesus. So he says what? He says, now, Paul explained, number one, that when Jesus came, we would be gathered together unto him. In other words, Jesus wasn't coming simply to dwell with us. We were going to be caught up to him. <laughs> Stay with me. That's the gathering together. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Paul underlines that both the living and the dead, I'm going to get to Judas but I need to explain this because it, it, it matters. The Apostle Paul underlines that both the living and the dead in Christ will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air at the second coming. That phrase, caught up, is the word that we get our word rapture from. Y'all stay with me now. That's where we get our word, the rapture. I heard somebody recently, 
I heard somebody recently talking about the book of Revelation. And they said, well, it really doesn't matter if believers understand the book of Revelation or not, because after Revelation chapter three, the church ain't here no way. We're going to get raptured. That's a lie. Stay with me. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 17. Paul says that both the living and the dead in Christ would be caught up. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And we will all together be caught up. That is all of the redeemed. It's not a part. It's not just the church. It's all of the redeemed. When does this happen? This happens at the second coming. <laughs> Stay with me. So Jesus explained that when he comes, he's going to send his angels who would gather his elect from the four winds. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus promised to come again and receive his children to himself to take them to the Father's house. Paul made it clear that the day <laughs> of the Lord's coming could not come. Now, this is where, this is where it's going to get tight. It could not come until certain events took place. So let's look at these events. Let's look at, <laughs> let's look at these events here. Second Thessalonians chapter three. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except, number one, there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now let's work on this for a minute. This expression, the falling away, comes from a Greek word, apostasia. Apostasia. It's where we get the English word apostasy from. Apostasia. It's where we get the word apostasy from. And the word apostasy, same word appears in, Matthew, in Acts 21, 21, where Paul was accused of teaching the people to forsake. It's the same word, apostasias, Moses. That is to fall away from the teaching of Moses. It's the same word. In the classical Greek, it's used to describe an anchorless boat that's drifting away from the port. So they would bring the boat up, and instead of tying the boat down, they would just put the rope in the boat, and it would begin to drift away. It is an apostasy. And Paul says that the second coming of Christ cannot come until the falling away takes place first. Now, again, this is another one of those passages where people say what we're experiencing today is the great falling away. Incorrect. The great falling away took place in the second century. You remember in Acts chapter 20 or 21, I forget which one, Paul called for the elders of the church, and he told them, he said that, listen, you're not going to see my face no more, right? He said, but I want you to take heed to yourselves and to all of the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Because I know something. I know that after my departure, now listen to Paul. Paul said to the elders at the church 
of Ephesus. After my departure, grievous wolves are going to come in and they're not going to spare the flock. Even among your own selves, men would rise up at drawing away disciples unto them. So Paul understood that once he and, and, and the first company of apostolic voices, the true fathers of the church, <laughs> once they were gone, the church was going to go through a series of events which would eventually lead the church into maturity. That's what the seven churches of the book of Revelation are dealing with. But the first century church slipped into apostasy. By the time it was in full swing, we were in what we call historically the Dark Ages. Y'all remember that from your history books, right? The Dark Ages. Because the light of the gospel had been extinguished until the Reformation. Once the Reformation hit, restoration began. Let me say it again. Once the Reformation hit, restoration began, but the church had already gone through the falling away that Paul was talking about. He said, the first thing that has to happen is there's going to be a falling away first. The man of sin would be revealed the son of perdition. And we're going to deal with this man of sin. Now watch this. The leader of this apostasy the man of sin, son of perdition, the apostle John also defined as he began to deal with the false doctrine and the false teachings that would take place. But now note this, the man of sin already existed while Paul was alive, but he was restrained. Listen, the same man of sin will continue to exist until the second coming of Christ and Christ will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Let's read that. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven. And it says this for the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth and will destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Folk, listen, the only thing that saves is truth. That's why Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. The only thing that saves is truth. Religion doesn't save. Churchianity doesn't save. Our religious ideas don't save. Our deep downloads don't save. Our supposed revelation and Holy Ghost insights don't save. What saves is a knowledge of the truth. That's why the enemy doesn't want truth proclaimed. He doesn't mind a perversion of Christianity 
being preached. He doesn't mind cultural Christianity being proclaimed. He doesn't even mind the national, the nationalistic ideology of Christianity that is so fluent within America. He doesn't even mind if that is proclaimed. And this is why people equate nationalism with Christianity, or they equate America as the kingdom of God. And it's not. America is a nation like all other nations that happens to have Christians in it. And this is why, as, as the covers, oh glory, I didn't plan on going here, but this is why as the covers are being pulled back and people are actually beginning to see the true nature of this nation, it's shocking a lot of people, and a lot of people don't know how to deal with it. They can't handle it because they've grown up on a romanticized notion of American history. Mm-hmm. They grew up thinking George Washington could not tell a lie. <laughs> ah, let, me, let me get off of that said the mystery of iniquity already works. So here we already have something in operation. We already have this, this iniquitous thing that's ripping and that's running and that's coursing through the very nature of humanity. Oh, but God's got an answer. In a certain point in history, however, the man of sin, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, would be revealed. He was already operating, but at a certain point, now he's going to be revealed. He's going to be uncovered. He's been operating and functioning thus far undercover. He's been operating covertly. <laughs> the word reveal is apocalypsis. It's where we get the word revelation from. But the opposite of something being revealed is for it to be concealed. And according to Paul, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the mystery of iniquity was already at work in his day. But it wouldn't come into full fruition until the very end of time, just prior to the second coming of Christ. And I submit to you, this is what we are witnessing in our world today, we are witnessing an uncovering. <laughs> you can better watch out for Judas, but watch this. Because that power is also called the son of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the little horn of Daniel 7, the son of perdition, all the same, not different, all the same different names bearing out different aspects and different characteristics of this power. The only other person in the Bible, <laughs> the only other person in the scripture called the son of perdition is Judas. The only two places in scripture you'll find that expression son of perdition is second Thessalonians and John chapter 17, verse 12. Let's read that. John 17, verse 12. 
I'm trying to I'm trying to help you understand how you can maintain your faith in these trying times that we live in. John chapter 17, verse 12 says this. Jesus is praying. He's doing his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17. And he prays to the Father. He said, while I was with them in the world, mm, 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 I have kept them. Do I want to go here? Yeah. I have kept them in your name. What did the Lord say? He said, I have come in my Father's name. Father, I have manifested your name. God has become our salvation. God is salvation. Yeshua, our English translation, Jesus. See, there's only one name under heaven, given. <laughs> Whereby we must be saved. That is the name Jesus. Did you ever wonder why people don't want to hear about Jesus no more? Oh, they'll talk about God and they'll talk about the Lord, but they don't want to talk about the name Jesus. There is no other name. Watch out for Judas. Now y'all stay with me. <laughs> he said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, those that you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. See, everything spoken in the scripture prophetically will come to pass. You can bank your life on prophecy. I'm talking about biblical prophecy. I ain't talking about ripping and running. Everybody got prophet in front of their name. But you, you, can, you can stake your salvation on prophecy. You can. Prophecy will keep you when nothing else will. I'm talking about biblical prophecy. I'm talking about understanding those things that God said will come to pass. Remember, he calls those things that be not as though they were. And from ancient times, he has declared things that have not yet happened. This is what prophecy, biblical prophecy, really begins to deal with. It's the unfolding of the purpose of God in historical time. Y'all stay with me now. And Jesus said, the only one that's lost of the 12 that you gave me <laughs> is the son of perdition. That would be Judas. Judas was the only one of the 12 who was lost. And that was so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas is referred to as the son of perdition. Paul mentions the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians. The man of sin must be revealed the son of perdition. Why is Paul using the expression that Jesus used about Judas? We're about to find out. Judas was not some blasphemous atheist outsider who kind of openly denied Jesus. See, this is how we think 
that the Antichrist is going to be functioning and operating. That's not how the Antichrist functions. <laughs> That's not how he functions. The man of sin, the son of perdition, claimed, stay with me, to be a follower of Jesus. Judas was numbered with the 11 apostles. He was one of them. At least he pretended to be one of them. Now, stay with me. But his loyalty to Jesus was made up. And it wasn't until the very end of the ministry of Jesus that his true purpose was revealed. So he's functioning covertly. He's functioning under the cover. Isn't that what Paul said that was going to happen? <laughs> the man of sin, the son of perdition, was going to be revealed just prior to the second coming of Christ? But he's functioning all of the time. And the reality of the matter is the spirit of Antichrist Judas, if you will, the son of perdition, is operating, and it's going to be interesting to note where he's operating, because he is not operating over in a Muslim country somewhere under the guise of Islam. He's not operating somewhere in the, in the academic halls of academia with some kind of atheistic philosophy. No, he's functioning among you. Stay with me. Judas was a chameleon. He was a traitor. He was admired, regarded by his peers, but he wore a mask. Judas wore a mask that even the disciples themselves weren't able to see through his shenanigans. You see, Judas was a zealot. Now, what was a zealot? Judas was a revolutionary. Judas was an individual who wanted to initiate revolution to get the people of God free from Roman rule. Judas was more concerned with Israel's nationalism than they were the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim. Judas was a nationalistic religionist. That's why the church in America needs to be careful. He wore a mask. He didn't want Jesus's spiritual kingdom. He wanted an earthly kingdom. He wanted the riches. He wanted the power. And he wanted the prestige. I'm talking about Judas, one of the 12. You see, not everybody in the body of Christ who names the name of Jesus is interested in the kingdom of God. Many people view Jesus and they view Christianity and they view scripture as a means to achieve worldly success, worldly power, and worldly fame. This is why many of our mega church pastors could do a reality TV show, call it the real church leaders in America. It's like reality TV. Judas in the upper room hypocritically asked Jesus, Lord, is it me? But he secretly betrayed Jesus for financial gain and actually told the religious leaders 
where they could find him. You know, it's interesting that one of the things that we learn in Revelation chapter 17 about the about the harlot, the whore of Babylon, is that she had fornicated herself with the kings of the earth. I wonder how many pastors, how many prophets, how many apostles, how many religious leaders today are selling Jesus out for financial gain, for, for corporate grants and making deals with the politicians for, for good deals on property and all of this other stuff that they want to call marketplace ministry. <laughs> I wonder how many of the leaders have actually sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. I wonder. Judas wanted financial gain. He wanted power. He wanted prominence. But note that in Luke chapter 22, when Judas finally betrays Jesus, he betrays him with a kiss. Mm. This is the man of sin. This is the son of perdition. And where is he operating? He's operating among the believers. He's in the followers of Christ and betrays Jesus with a kiss. Mm. You know how many church leaders are betraying Jesus today with a kiss? As the song said, we are not ashamed. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for we have everlasting life. Compromising the gospel for worldly gain and worldly success is not worth it. Betrayed him with a kiss. Judas, Judas was acting according to the operation of Satan. He was a scale model of the final Antichrist. Stay with me. He is a scaled down model of the Antichrist. And we've got all of these people. We have all of these people out talking about the Antichrist is going to be this great atheist. He, he, he's going to be from an Islamic country. He's going to be from another country other than America. You know, <laughs> it's not even what scripture teaches given this description. What did Paul say in 2 Thessalonians? <laughs> he said, I don't know why he's talking about that. You know, he need to be talking about how to get blessed. He need to be talking about, you know, how to get a promotion, how, you know, how to take the word of God and prosper and how to, because that's all people want to hear. That's, that, that's them itching ears that scripture talks about how the enemy would deceive people through the deceitfulness of riches. My, 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 my. So he says, 2 Thessalonians, what did he say? Watch this. It says, the mystery of iniquity, well, he says that the man of sin, the falling away must take place first. The falling away began in the second century. This is why when you go back and you start reading anything about church history, 
if that even interests Christians nowadays, I'm amazed at the amount of Christians who don't want to know anything about their faith. <laughs> they don't want to know anything about the history of the faith. They just don't want to know. People are being conditioned to not think in America. Seriously, people are being conditioned to not think. People are being conditioned to not read, not process anything, don't use any kind of, of critical thinking skills. Just take what your leaders say and run to the bank with it. We do it with our politicians and we do it with our religious leaders. We don't question anything that they say. We don't research. We don't run references. Then we wonder why. We in a mess that we in. But he said that this man of sin, he's going to oppose and he's going to exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that. Now, here is what. Now, now watch, watch the agenda. You know, we, you know, everybody's talking about the agendas that's taking place in, 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 in the earth. And I've already said there's a lot of agendas, but let's really hone in on Satan's real agenda. Listen, folks, listen, listen. I know we believe that America is like the hope of the world. America is not the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. And, and I understand what has happened uh, within the telling of the Christian narrative in America. I understand that we have a revisionist version of Christianity that has been promoted in America. And this is what is fueling a lot of people. It's, it's this revisionist view of Christianity that we have, which is really just cultural Christianity. It's part of our culture. See? Scripture says you must be born again. Then say you must be born an American. You must be born again. You're not a Christian because you were born in America. <laughs> All right. So, so anyway, oh, I'm having fun. He says, and now... He said, listen, verse four, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God so that he as God sits, watch, in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. What does Satan want to do? There's a reason it's called the Antichrist spirit. It's a reason it's called the Antichrist. It's a duplication. It is a perversion. It's a replacement. This is not a spirit powering people or a system that it's obvious to anybody that looks at it that is antichrist. You know, we, we we call all kind of people antichrist nowadays. They got the spirit of antichrist. If they don't agree with our political agenda, it's an antichrist spirit. If they don't agree with our church's position, it's an antichrist spirit. No. The antichrist is interested, now watch, in replacing Christ. Let me say it again. It's interested in replacing Christ. It wants to be like Christ. 
wants to be worshiped like Christ, wants to have ministers promoting its message like Christ. So anything, anything that Jesus is doing, you can look for the Antichrist to mimic. That's why, as I point out often, there are so many false prophets running around the earth, Jezebelian prophets, because the enemy understands how God communicates to his people prophetically. So what does he do? He sets up a duplicate system. <laughs> That's the Antichrist. Because ultimately, where does he want to sit? He wants to sit in the temple of God. Now, let me remind you of something. The language of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 comes from Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37, where the king of the north, the same power that is the little horn and the beast, blasphemes God and exalts himself above all gods, wants to be worshipped. Now, I'm going to make a statement here, and people might get upset, but there have been people down through history that you would really have to question the people that gave them the reverence and the honor, the respect and the worship that they did. Nero, you think about the Neros, you think about the Pharaohs, you think about your Hitlers, you think about your Mussolinis, you think about some of these dictators. They literally have the worship of people and people just stop thinking. They just stop thinking. That is a satanic agenda conditioning the minds of people for the ultimate deception. So he says here, he wants to sit in the temple of God. Now, let me say this. Throw your Hal Lindsey book away. Late Great Planet Earth. Throw your Grant Jeffries books away. Throw your movies and DVDs and your books on the Left Behind series. Throw them away. There is no third temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem that the Antichrist is going to sit in. It's not part of the prophetic plan. When Jesus... Let me, let me deal with this temple. Where is the temple of God? Many people may assume Paul's talking about the Jerusalem temple. However, that ignores two facts. When Jesus left the Jerusalem temple the last time, he said to the Jewish leaders, you'll find this in Matthew 23, 38, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. When he first came, he said, my father's house. Remember, he cleaned out the temple and he said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all people, but you have made it a den of thieves. By the end of Jesus's ministry, he didn't even refer to the temple as the father's house. He said, your house, because the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem because they rejected the God of the temple in Jesus, <laughs> Jesus said, your house 
is left unto you desolate. Your house, that's your house. The Apostle Paul, secondly, never uses the expression, the temple of God, as a reference to the Jerusalem temple. Never. Let's see what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. Paul describes the temple of God as a spiritual building whose foundations are the apostles and the prophets, and the chief cornerstone is none other than than Jesus. Let's, let's, let's read that. Because y'all think I'm making it up. <laughs> let's read that. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's see what let's see what Paul describes as the temple. Ephesians chapter 2, verses. Let's read 19. 1920. Now therefore you are no more strangers and fellas, uh, strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, mm -hmm. in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the spirit. The only temple that is being built <laughs> is the people of God. We are the temple of God. We are being builded together as a habitation of God through the Spirit. God does not dwell in temples made by hands. Paul never uses the expression the temple of God to refer to a physical, literal temple. To the Corinthian church, the apostle said, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? The apostle Peter, who wrote to the church of the dispersion, agrees with Paul. And he says that Jesus is the, the cornerstone and his followers are also living stones. He states that the house and the sacrifices are received of God. Let's read that, 1 Peter chapter 2. See, it's amazing what we can discover about the Scripture when we let the Scriptures interpret themselves. <laughs> Got all these folks looking over in the Middle East somewhere for some Antichrist to show up. And all of the while, the Antichrist is working covertly, and he's in your midst, just like Judas. Now watch. First Peter chapter 2. This is what he says. I know this ain't what your, fav your famous prophecy teachers teach, but it's, it's the word anyway. He says, you are living stones, and you are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believes on him should not be confounded. See, if people can get our focus off of us being the temple of God, not the church building that we go to. <laughs> this, is why, this is how people get confused, you know, 
they, they think going to the church house, they are somehow going into the presence of God. Folks, the presence of God has come into the temple. The, 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 ooh, the spirit of God dwells in the temple of God. We are the temple of God. The spirit of God dwells in you. The presence of God dwells in you. But we so focus on we got to go to church to try to find God. Or we got to go to this building to try to experience the presence of God. You know, and we got to do this and we got to go and listen to, you know, we got to listen to these fake preachers up here preaching this counterfeit gospel that doesn't feed, doesn't heal, doesn't save, doesn't deliver. <laughs> All right, let me keep going. Paul, as well as Peter, now, all of the Protestant reformers, this is up through starting at the 1500s, because remember, after Paul and the apostles came on the scene, the church slid into the dark ages. The great falling away that he talked about in 2 Thessalonians set in, and then we had all of the stuff that took place from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century on until the 16th century when the Reformation broke out. So we've got this massive religious structure. <laughs> we've got this counterfeit version of Christianity that's built on works, that's built on confessing your sin to a priest, that's built on penance. It's, it's built on all these Hail Marys, it's built on all of these religious works and your obedience to a system that they called Christianity, which was not Christianity. <laughs> Why? Because the man of sin wants to sit in the temple of God, showing himself he is God. And that's exactly what he did. But with the coming of the reformers, the man of sin was revealed. You need to go back and start reading some of what the early reformers had to say about that system that we call the papacy. Go back and read what the reformers were rebelling against. Read what they were coming out of. Read what they were preaching against. They were preaching against a system, not against people that were a part of the system. They were preaching against the system. Why? Because they recognized in the system, the man of sin, they recognized in the system, the Antichrist spirit. They recognized in the system, the whore of Babylon, Revelation 17. They recognized in the system, the little horn of Daniel 7. They recognized. And then out of that system came a counter-reformation that began to try to get the heat off of them, and they built another system of understanding end-time prophecy that gets the light off of them and say, well, we can't be because that's not going to happen until thousands of years, and it's going to be over in Jerusalem. Oh, folks, y'all need to start reading. I'm serious. <laughs> y'all need to start doing your homework. 
Turn off that TV and open up your Bible. Let God talk to you. So Paul, as well as Peter and all of the reformers, understood that the temple of God is the people of God. It's the Christian church. And the church is not a building. The church is not an institution. The church is not an organization. The church isn't somewhere we go. The church is who we are. We are the ecclesia. We are the called out people of God. We are the temple of God. We don't go to church. We are the church. Now, again, this version of Christianity that we've received. The Reformation, the restoration is still in process. It's not over. The Reformation didn't end with Martin Luther. We are still in times of Reformation. There, there is still, there are still things that are foundational to the gospel that's being restored back to the body of Christ. One of those things is the true place and the true authority of God's name. Remember, Jesus said, I have revealed your name. I have come in my Father's name. And people have a problem with the name. I'm talking about Christians. So-called, beware and watch out for Judas. So he says, <laughs> this is good, that this power, verse 4, would oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God. In what sense does this power oppose God? I'm going to read this, and I will be done. I'm going to do a part two of this, because I'm enjoying it. Does this spirit, does this thing openly mm, 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 blasphemy and defy the God of heaven? Or is his opposition more subtle? Remember, Judas is a type of the man of sin. So we can watch how Judas operated and we can understand how this man of sin on a much larger scale is going to operate. Judas was in the midst of the believers and he was undetectable until he was revealed. While claiming to serve God, he wars against God. He replaces everything that God set in. He replaces the ministry of the ministry of Christ with the ministry of men. He he replaces the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher with the pope, the bishop, the archbishop, you name it. <laughs> he replaces everything. He replaces the substitutionary death of Christ with the mass. Mm-hmm. He, can, he replaces confessing your sin to God with confessing your sin to a man in a booth who is a sinner just like you. 
Oh, Lord. While claiming to serve God, he wars against God. Think about it. The bitterest enemies of the prophets in the Old Testament were the very people to which they belong and to whom they were sent. The believer's greatest enemy is not outside. The greatest enemy to the believer is inside. All that false doctrine and heresy and false brethren. You know, all of the stuff that Paul and the rest of the apostles talked about in, in, in the scriptures that we won't talk about today because we don't want folk to think we hating. <laughs> all of the warnings that are given to us in the scripture about other Jesuses being preached and other gospels fueled by another spirit, all of the warnings that we're given in scripture that we won't talk about because we don't think people want to hear it. I, I told my, uh, 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 my, my, my buddy last night, um, it's very difficult to get people who are part of a system to link up with you uh, to destruct the system. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's difficult to get people who are part of a system to join ranks to destroy the system. So the bitterest enemies of the prophets in the Old Testament were the very people to which they belong and to whom they were sent. That And nothing changed in the New Testament. Jesus said a prophet, a true prophet. I ain't talking about people just going around prophesying. I'm talking about a true prophet that has, that has the prophetic word. He said a prophet is not without honor except in his own house, among his own folk, in his own town. Talk about true prophets. See, we have this revisionist brand of Christianity. And we think being a true prophet entitles us to go on TBN or CNN. <laughs> Sell some more books. The greatest enemies of Jesus were those who claimed to serve God. So, so, so it shouldn't shock us, beloved, when we start finding out that folk we thought were for us are actually against us. When folk we thought were in our corner were actually plants of the enemy trying to work covertly. Oh, but the Spirit of God is going to begin to reveal some Judases in your midst. Don't be shocked. Saul of Tarsus opposed God while he claimed to be defending the cause of God. Remember Paul? He murdered believers, and he thought he was serving God. There's a lot of people today think that they're serving God who are going to turn and go after the true followers of Christ. Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> the time is coming soon when people who are killing people of God are actually think that they're rendering God a service. And that's not hard to believe, <laughs> especially in America. When you see some of the craziness that goes on in the name of the Lord, tied into our political systems, we shout in every little victory that we have. Let me share something with y'all that, that I sensed. I was watching something yesterday. I was, I was watching something yesterday. 
And the thing that came up was, I said, it's almost like we are being conditioned. It's, it's like the limits of law are being tested in this country. They want to see just how far, just how far can we push this before people just openly reject? How far can we push on this? Now, let me say this. It's not the Democrats and it's not the Republicans. <laughs> it, it goes much deeper than that. But how far can we push on people to where they will accept that what the courts say is almost synonymous with the will of God. That's a dangerous thing when many people involved claim to be Christians. Y'all stay with me. When this is claiming to be done as our Christian values and we push the limits of this, we push the boundaries of this. But what happens when those same institutions and those same structures begin to say what Christians can believe and not believe? What happens then? See, we shout the victory over other issues, but when it comes down, <laughs> when it comes down to your faith and your 501c3, when it comes down to your faith and your, your prestige as a clergy person in your city, when it comes down to that, how willing will people be to compromise the gospel over against cultural Christianity? This is why we, 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 we really need to be able to make a, a distinction between cultural Christianity and Christianity. Cultural Christianity is what has been embraced in America. It's a part of our American way of life. I'm not trying to upset folk. I'm trying to help you understand what's going on. It's a part of our American way of life. But it's not necessarily Christian. It looks eerily Roman, actually. And you start, you, you start on this real thin line between separation of powers, of, of church and state, and, and what happens when the church seizes the power of the state or the state seizes the influence of the church. We've, we've seen this happen before. We've read that book before. It's called Inquisitions. We've read that book before. And whenever the church seizes or, or, or attempts to utilize civil power to enforce its agenda, folk were making an image to the beast. That's what happened during the Dark Ages. That's what brought about the Reformation. This man of sin, this is what Judas did. Judas got in the midst of the believers. What he actually wanted, though, he actually wanted Jesus to assert his divine right 
and overthrow the Roman power and establish Israel as the world power. That is what Judas was after. He was after power. He was after money. He was after prestige. That is how the Antichrist works. And sad to say, he is working that same agenda within many churches in this country, in this nation. People say, well, how do you get on that? Because there's a Judas in the midst, folk. The man of sin is being revealed. This Judas, what can I get from Christ? How can I use the momentum of the Jesus movement to accomplish my ends? This is what was going on in the mind of Judas. Judas actually believed that by betraying Jesus, Jesus would assert his divine right and call down judgment on Rome and free Israel. That is how deception actually works in the human heart. It actually believes that it can manipulate and use the gospel to achieve its own end. Folk, listen, America was built on that lie. People say, well, are you anti-American? Absolutely not. I've served my country. I love, I love America. There's not a country on the face of, of God's green earth that I would rather have been born and grew up and live in. But America is what it is. And people, we're going to wake up. Hopefully, we're going to wake up. The church, the body of Christ in America must understand what we're here for. We must understand that we are here to proclaim the kingdom of God. If you think the world is going to love you, you've got to, you, you, you. <laughs> if you think everybody going to love to see you come, you got another thought coming. If you think all your family and all your friends and all, you know, everybody else, and when you get fired up for Jesus, is just going to be so happy. They're not. The gospel brings an offense. There is an offense to the preaching of the cross. There is an offense. It's hard on us to hear the truth. Me too, because the truth cuts. The truth cuts. But God is preparing a bride. He's preparing a people. Judas is about to be revealed. Folks, I'm, I'm telling you this. Listen, I'm telling you this so that when it happens, it doesn't throw you. It doesn't throw you. What does Paul say? Let me read it again. Let me read it again and close this thing out. I'll do a part two tomorrow, though. Watch this. He says, don't you remember that I told you this? And now you know what is restraining so that he might be revealed in his time for the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets will let until 
he's taken out of the way. And then that wicked will be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and will destroy with the brightness of his coming. I'm not saying Jesus is coming tomorrow. What I'm saying is that we are living in the day of the coming of the Lord. The falling away has already taken place. The man of sin has been revealed. The son of perdition, who we can look at Judas and see that the Antichrist wants to sit in the temple of God. We are the temple of God. The Antichrist is not interested in dwelling in a temple in Jerusalem. He wants to dwell in you in the same way that he dealt in Judas. Remember when Judas dipped his sop in the cup with the Lord. It said, then Satan entered into him. Ultimately, Satan wants to inhabit humanity. And he uses religion to do it. This is the thing, and I don't know if many people really realize this, but he has so counterfeited Christianity that many people are actually operating under deceptive spirits, and they think it's the Holy Spirit, and it's not. That's why they can't talk about Jesus. They can talk about the Lord, and they can talk about God, but they can't talk about Jesus, because there's power in the name of Jesus. That's why they don't preach Jesus. They preach everything other than Jesus. Are you listening to me? <laughs> but he's building the temple. He's building the people of God. Somebody said you got to stop eating from everybody's table. You, you, you got that right. There has never been a time when we need to stop eating from everybody's table. You need to know whose food you eat. Oh, won't you reach for it? Reach, you can reach.